Hi, I'm Megan. I'm Colin, and this is Pet Sitter Sitter Confessional. Confessional. An open and honest discussion about life as a pet sitter. Brought to you by Time to Pet and Pet Sitters International. Not that anybody is counting, but there are 145 days until tax day here in the United States. So it's with that in mind that we are really excited to have Mike Jezusek back on the show. He owns and operates Jetro Tax for small businesses. He was on the show previously back on episodes 22, 44, and 127. Mike shares with us something brand new for this and next year's tax filing that we need to be paying attention to. He also discusses if you hired this year or if you started accounting for sales tax, some things that you need to have on hand when you go to file. We also talk about the difference between putting something on the business account versus your personal account and when to make that decision, especially when it comes around purchasing a vehicle. We're really excited about this, and there's a lot covered here, so get out your pen and paper. Let's get started. Yeah, Colin, thanks for having me on. It's always uh, always a fun time being on the podcast. <laughs> so to kick things off, what new things for tax season should we as small business owners be thinking about, or maybe you want more people to know about? Yeah. So, you know, the big thing that I, you know, one of the most important things here that that is a change specifically for this year and next year. So 2021 and 2022 is this idea of meals expense. So traditionally meal expenses are 50% deductible. So you go to lunch with a client, uh, you pay for that lunch, you get a 50% deduction. Pay $100, your tax deduction is going to be $50. Uh, but due to COVID, uh, for 2021 and 2022, the IRS has increased that amount for any dinners that you do at restaurants or meals that you do at restaurants to be 100% deduction. So now you go out to the lunch with that client, it's 100% deduction for 2021 and 2022, may likely or will likely revert back to that 50% after next year. But that is one thing that I think some people don't realize or understand is, is that's available this year. So that's that's one major change that, uh, that we're, we're going to want to be thinking about uh, this year and going into next year. And another thing on that topic is to go back and think about some of those lunches, some of those meals that you might have done already this year, making sure you're keeping record of them and making sure that you are taking a 50 or a hundred percent deduction on it. So I always kind of tell you, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but this idea of go back through your expenses, maybe some expenses that you did on your personal account and see if, Hey, maybe there was some things that were business related in there that I can make that business expense and meals might be a great option now with that being a hundred percent deductible. Meals is always something. I think it's, it's a big topic of what's covered and what's not. And I, I do want to ask, well, you're talking specifically about meals when you are doing some business planning, meeting with a business partner, taking a client out to lunch. If if I am, as the business owner, going between visits or going from job to job, can I put those those kind of expenses on a business account or should those really go more on personal? Traditionally, if it's just you individually, traditionally, those are going to go on your personal side. Now, if you were traveling, like let's say you were overnight or you were traveling you know, for a conference or something like that, that's a different story. That would be a hundred, that would be deductible just as anyways. But if you're just going from, let's say you're going from your home office to a client that's 10 minutes down the road and in between there, you're going to stop and, and pick up a sandwich and a, and a drink. That's not going to be a, a tax deduction. But again, 
if you're traveling, if you're going further away, if you're meeting with a client or anybody else, that it's actually a business meeting. That's the purpose of the meal. That's where the deduct- deduction comes. So mm. uh, that that's kind of yeah. Think about it that way. You know, they they don't want to think of meals that you're going to have to 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 do as a personal person anyway. So like, you can't just deduct your, your dinners every night because you're like, well, I'm a business owner, so I can deduct my dinners if it's not business related. And so that's kind of the idea behind that. You have to be traveling kind of a farther ways away, or there has to be an, a business reason for that specific meeting or meal that you're having. Is there a set place to go and look for what constitutes traveling and further away? Is it X number of miles from your home domicile, or is it just if you were registered for a conference, then things get deducted for that? Yeah, there is an actual specific kind of distance away from your home that you have to be where that's considered a travel or an overnight travel. I don't know the number offhand, but if you just search into Google, like IRS, uh, traveling, what's considered a traveling meal or what where are meals deductible for traveling, you'll be able to find it there. And then I'll, I also have an article that we did on it on our small business tax savings podcast. So I'll share a link for you too, that you can share that in the show notes. Yeah, I think that's 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 really good because many times as business owners, especially as pet sitters, we're traveling, we're constantly busy, and there's always that that itch to do lunch uh, on the business. But as you're saying, that's not really uh, applicable as a as a as a qualifying deduction for business. So make sure that goes on the the personal side. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and on that, um, we, we've used two words. We've used a business account and a personal account. It's, it sounds pretty basic and pretty simple when it comes to starting and operating a business, but why is it so important to have those distinctions between my, my business and my personal life? Yeah, and that is so huge, and it's something that we see so, so many small business owners not do correctly. Um, and the main reason that you want to have a separate business account from a personal bank account is simply for, for simplicity purposes. Um, you can have a full record of Everything that's going on in the business, it's not commingled with a bunch of other items. And so oftentimes we say, you're going to miss deductions if you don't have those separated. Because you might have went out to, to lunch with a client. But now when you're kind of recording your bookkeeping and doing those things, you're like, hmm, what was that lunch? Was that for personal or business? And sometimes you might be missing out on a deduction because you categorize it under the wrong way. On the flip side... You might be taking more deductions than you actually legally can because you might have that that deduction or that that meal that you went out with um, individually or alone, or you went out with a bunch of buddies and there was nothing business related to that that you might accidentally take because you didn't have that separation. So, the reason that we always want to have a business account separate from our personal account is one, it makes it easy to record everything that's going on in the business because we know everything in the business is going through that business account. Now, you might have some things that accidentally get put on the personal account. Then you can do a reimbursement to reimburse yourself for those items. Or if you have items that are business and personally mixed, you can do a reimbursement to, in, to reimburse yourself for the business piece. But it creates that simplicity where you'd have all the income and all the expenses related to the business. It makes bookkeeping so much easier because you know every single transaction that account can be coded to something. It also helps in the event of an IRS audit because you have that clear separation. If you send the IRS a bank statement and it has a thousand transactions of which 200 you said were business related, they might start to scrutinize your business transactions a little bit more deeper because they see it commingled and mixed in with a bunch of things. So they might ask for receipts and more proof that maybe if you had a business account that they might not ask for 
because they can see that clear distinction between the two. Um, and, and just for cleanliness purpose. And I always tell people, the most people get started in business, a lot of people are like, I really don't know where this is going to go. We're starting out really small. So they get started in business, not really sure kind of where it's going to take off, what's going to happen. And, uh, and so for that reason, they just keep everything in their personal account. Well, then that business grows and they still have everything in their personal account and then they grow even more and they still have everything in their personal account. And all of a sudden they have a nice operating business here, but their bookkeeping and, and of course, when it comes to tax time is a disaster. Mm-hmm. And so I always say, Regardless of kind of where you think this business is going to do, how it's going to take off, just go open up a business bank account, get a debit card associated with it, and and run your activity through there. Worst case scenario, things don't work out. You shut the business account down and you're fine. Best case scenario, things grow. Everything works out great. Well, now you kind of have at least that good foundation, that good start to having kind of those clean um, set of books there. Mm. I'll also add for for me one of the reasons why I love having the differences, not just meeting the the regulations and making tax kind easier. When I go back to reflect on like expenses from the previous year and do more tracking over time to see what my expenses are per month, it makes it a lot easier to start pulling out some of this data and start crunching it than if I'm having to go. Oh well, that was those were leashes, but that was a grocery store run and that was the kid's tuition and that was this and that was that. It, just to be able to have one set, uh, you know, throw an Excel file and start seeing how much have my expensive changed? What have I actually spent? What's the revenue? And you can really see and pull out. It makes it a lot more powerful and easier to work with than if you're having to parse through all of your, your personal stuff too. Yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, the some people might say, well, I don't want to pay an extra fee to my bank for this business bank account. Yeah. There's actually a new digital bank that's super cool that we've kind of been working and in, in, in gearing clients towards uh, that have free accounts. It's a completely online digital bank. You can have multiple debit cards. You can have virtual credit cards. You literally can open up a business bank account in five minutes online by providing some documentation in your business, and you can be set with a business bank account online. So I, I, I encourage people to think about, you know, that it, it is a lot easier than you might think. You don't need to necessarily have all these documentations, pay a monthly fee or anything like that. There are free options out there. The company I'm referring to that we work a lot with is called RelayFi. So oh. Relay Financial, RelayFi.com. Uh, but it's very similar to Novo, same type of model, just a different bank. But yeah, sure. and there's a, there's a bunch of them out there. And honestly, it just makes it so much easier when you're trying to uh, to, to get access really quickly to uh, a business bank account. I, yeah, and I, I know people may have concerns about doing an online only and not having access to a physical location. I know the majority of those online only ones still have relationships where you can go into a physical location for another bank, still use their ATM and possibly be reimbursed for ATM fees or still deposit checks or still get cashier's checks through through their network of physical bank locations. So you're not totally removed from having access to a lot of those services too. Yeah. And another thing I say is that you can start out with one of those just because it's super easy to get set up. It's free, no charge. And also you, you, if you have a great relationship with a local bank or something like that, that you're like, I would just rather feel more comfortable. Great. Well, now your business is performing well, you go open that bank account. Mm. Uh, but if I, I just don't want the idea of having to open a bank account to be what deters people from doing it. And that's where I think that these digital options are a great, a great alternative because there's really no excuse with those digital options because it is so easy to get set up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if someone has a relationship and they want that personal banker, of course, totally go to, to a bank that you feel comfortable with. But 
Um, it just takes a little bit more to get a business bank account opened up in a, in a live setting than what other options are. So I always just say there is no excuse to not have a business bank account because it only takes a couple minutes online to get one at least initially set up. Right now is the perfect time to do a year-end review. And one of those things we need to be assessing is our business software. Have you heard of Time to Pet? Dan from NYC Pooch has this to say. Time to Pet has been a total game changer for us. It helped us streamline many aspects of our operation, from scheduling and communication to billing and customer management. Uh, We actually tested other pet sitting softwares in the past, but these other solutions were clunky and riddled with problems. Everything in Time to Pet has been so well thought out. It's intuitive, feature-rich, and it's always improving. If you think it's time to make a change, give Time to Pet a try. Listeners of our show can save 50% off your first three months by visiting timepet.com slash confession. Now, once we get those accounts set up, we, we have to start doing accounting and tracking the expenses in a particular model. And the, the two ones that are on a lot of forms or when you go to file taxes, you're going to get asked about are, are, the, are whether you do cash accounting or accrual accounting. So what's, what's the difference between those and how do I know which one applies to me or not? Yeah, so so cash basis accounting is essentially or, or bookkeeping, and and when we're kind of talking this area, accounting and bookkeeping can be interchangeable. Uh, but cash basis accounting is basically that as money enters and leaves your bank account, that's when it gets recorded. Mm. So if it's November first or December first, and you get a, a deposit that came in for some dog walking that you did, that's going to be income on December first when that money comes in. If you then go make an expense, pay a contractor that you might have on December 2nd, that's going to be an expense on December 2nd. So cash basis is really just kind of recording the activity as it's actually happening. Income is recorded when you receive it. Expenses are recorded when you make them, pay them. Now, accrual is going to be a little bit different. So accrual, you're going to have invoices and bills that you're tracking that activity. So let's say you did a dog walking in November. You're going to create an invoice, and you're actually going to report income or sales in November, regardless of when you get paid. So if you get paid in, in December, in January, if you get paid two years from now, with accrual accounting, you're going to already have recorded that activity in this November. So the accrual how it works is as you send, as you earn that money, you show income as you earn it, not necessarily when you receive it. And expenses also are recorded when they occur, not not necessarily when they're paid. So an example for that might be like let's say you buy a bunch of product or buy a bunch of um, you know activity, or you have a contractor that did work for you in November, but you didn't pay them till December. You're going to get that expense when that actual contractor worked, which was November, not necessarily when they got paid. So cash is a very easy to understand. It makes accounting and bookkeeping a lot easier. Accrual is going to be a little bit more accurate to reality because you're actually reporting income when it occurs and you're recording expenses when it occurs, regardless of when you get when you receive it or when you make them. Uh, but obviously that comes with a little bit of complexities. So as far as which one's best for you or which one's best for business, that's going to be different for everybody. I would say, though, that for simplicity purposes, the majority of the businesses that we're talking with is going to be on a cash basis accounting. Uh, Most of those accrual basis are going to be uh, large corporations. Maybe you have million dollars plus in revenue. Um, They're going to just be a little bit more advanced, but they need more accurate or more uh, information on the details of that type of activity. 
Now, there's also a software out there, whether you're using QuickBooks Online or Zero or something like that. There's ways that you can bounce between the two. So you can run a cash basis report. You can run an accrual basis report. So the reason that that is available is that still, if you want to invoice your customers and you want to create bills to indicate who you owe money to, you can still do it in those accounting software and you can still get a, a, a reporting on cash basis, even though you're creating those invoices, creating those bills. But at the same time, you can toggle between the two. Mm. So, you know, I, I would say that majority of the people that we're working with, majority of the business owners, small business owners, I always say, keep it simple. Let's make this easy. Let's not make this difficult. <laughs> and I'm going to encourage cash basis for the majority of the time. But I will say that that's, that does not mean that you don't send invoices to customers. That does not mean that you're not going to track who you owe and when you owe it to them. Those are things that you can still do even being on a cash basis. Yeah, I think that's good to know that there is that kind of third option hanging out there that you can do a hybrid model. It's not, it's because I know whenever I first look at this, it's like, oh, there are two. I must choose to run my business this way or only this way. But when any of us looking at our business is going, well, I kind of do a little bit of both, or maybe the, the majority of my business is cash, but I do, I have some accrual stuff every now and then with how I'm, with how I'm invoicing or I'm being invoiced. So it is good to know that you can, using a software or if it's not too complicated, probably just by yourself have some idea, better understanding by running it both ways. Yeah. And really, you will have to make a choice when you file your taxes, which one you're going to report your taxes on. Right. But when you're using it for internal purposes, you you can toggle between the two. And so that's where most people, we even have clients that are actually for for reporting purposes and management purposes, they may be running their books on accrual. But for simplicity, when it comes to tax time, we're running it as cash. So the 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 way that you do your bookkeeping on a day to day basis can be either or. It's just the 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 one that you have to actually make a decision and be consistent with it is once you do your tax return, you kind of have to choose between the two. And again, for tax purposes, more often than not, we're encouraging someone to do or our clients to do cash basis accounting for their taxes because it is simpler. That's Sometimes there's going to be scenarios where accrual might make sense, but majority of small businesses, cash is totally fine. This last year saw a lot of changes uh, in the the industry and in the uh, economy writ large. Many small businesses and, and pet care businesses hired for the first time. What does tax season look like for somebody who's just hired? And, and how do they make sure that it goes smoothly for them? Yeah, so, so you know... Uh, I will say this with the assumption that if you're hiring employees, you're using some type of payroll type software. So obviously when you bring on a worker, you can choose to pay them as a contractor or an an employee, a W-2 employee. And and you you actually don't get to choose it necessarily, um, but the the government kind of makes that decision or at least sets guidelines of kind of what's going to direct you to that. But if you if you have a worker that comes on, let's say they choose their own hours, they tell you what their rate's going to be, uh, they kind of control everything, they're just kind of uh, subcontracting work through you, that's going to be typically what you call an independent contractor. You're not going to be, when you pay them, you're just sending them a check, you're not taking any taxes out or doing anything like that. For those individuals, you're going to want to make sure that you have a W-9 on file for them, and then you're going to want to make sure you send them a 1099 after the year's over. Now, those are going to be considered self-employed individuals because they're not employees of yours. They're just contractors of yours. So they're going to have to handle paying the taxes on it. They're basically taking that income that you send them and they're 
running their own business. They're going to have some of their own expenses. They're going to have to pay the taxes on it. And so if you have, you know, the key distinction is first off, figuring out, is it in contractor or is it an employee? Because that's going to be a big impact on the decision that you make. Um, but then once you have that figured out, then yeah, contractors, we have to send a nine nine to at the end of the year. Just It's just a, a very simple form that says how much you have paid to them. Now, on the flip side, employees, these are going to be people that you have more control over. And so I think this is kind of more geared towards your question asked is that this yeah. is going to be an employee. They're working for you. You're controlling their hours. You decide the rate for them. You might be supplying equipment and stuff for them to do their work. Um, again, I'm assuming that you're using a payroll software, which I would always, always recommend anyone that has employees to just pay the money to have a payroll software out there. But that payroll software is going to take care of filing your tax forms, making your tax payments, kind of doing all of that activity, you know, usually they're going to file your W-2s, which is what your employee is going to report that income on and on their return. They're going to pretty much handle all of that for you. So not a ton changes from your standpoint when it comes to having a year where you hire your employees outside of just making sure that you have that recorded correctly within your bookkeeping. And then I'll turn, you know, finally your tax return, making sure that you have that wages and salaries reported correctly on there, broken out from payroll taxes versus kind of what the gross was and things like that. So that would be kind of the the caveat. Now, if if you ran payroll, but you haven't used a payroll company, that changes the story completely. Your end of year is (laughs) going to be uh, pretty hectic. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of filings and there's probably actually forms and filings and things that you might've already missed depending on when you brought that employee on. Oh, well, it sounds like step one is make sure you understand the difference between an independent contractor and employee and then get software to make your life easier. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That first one, if you're going to have employees, uh, you know, if you've made the determination that yes, it's an employee, uh, utilize the software out there. There's tons of them. We recommend a software called Gusto. Uh, they make just payroll so much easier and they're relatively inexpensive for really a lot of work that they're doing, a lot of automation that they're doing on the back end that you don't even have to worry about. Yeah. If you're paying a contractor, if you say, nope, I've, these, I've determined and, and read, read the rules, these are contractors, you might not need a software for that. That's a lot easier because you're just making the payment to them and filing a 1099 at year end. That's the only thing you need to do. You're not filing payroll tax forms. You're not paying taxes or anything like that. You're just making payments to the individual or company and filing a 1099 at year end. Let's talk about business taxes and health insurance. Uh, I know you've actually done a really very good series on this on on your own podcast, the uh, uh, Tax Savings Podcast, about health insurance as a small business owner. So we're coming to the end of the year. Um, What are my options? for either deductions with health insurance or getting access to that if I'm looking to lower my tax burden going into tax season. Yeah. So, you know, first off, if you're paying health insurance, you're self-employed paying health insurance premiums, those are 100% deductible. And so that's one thing that I want to make obvious to you that, again, if you're self-employed and you have health insurance premiums that you're paying, those are going to be 100% deductible, assuming they're not like under a spouse's plan or something like that. They're, they're, part of the self-employed plan. Mm. Now, how you deduct them is just going to change based on how you're operating or how you're set up. So if you're a single member LC, a sole proprietor, a partnership, something like that, you're just going to report the self-employed health insurance deduction directly on your personal tax return. It's very easy. You're just filing when you file your personal tax return. 
If you're set up as an S corporation, it makes things a little bit more complex. So with an S corporation, you know, you're required to run payroll to yourself as an owner of the company. And so with an S corporation, you're going to run that health insurance through the business. You're going to take a business deduction for that health insurance, that self-employed health insurance. Now, the key thing here is that whatever that amount is, you also need to add to your W-2 as an employee of your company. So mm. let's say you have $10,000 in, in health insurance premiums and you're self-employed. If you're an S corporation, you're going to run that through the S corporation, get a $10,000 deduction. Then you're going to add $10,000 to your W-2 income for that self-employed health insurance premiums. Contact your payroll provider. They're going to know exactly where to add that and how to add it. And then you're going to get the deduction again on your personal tax return, just like a sole proprietorship and everyone else for that $10,000. So they make you jump through hoops. You're taking a deduction, you're adding it to income, and then you're taking the deduction again. The net result is that you get a deduction for it. There's just some hoops that you have to jump through. So just kind of as a recap, sole proprietorship, single member LC, partnership, you're just taking on your personal tax return, self-employed health insurance deduction. With the S-Corp, you have to take it as a deduction on the S-Corp, add your W-2, and then you're going to get it again on your personal tax return. So it's another hoop to jump through. Uh, But the key thing is that if you're self-employed, you're paying for health insurance premiums, they are deductible 100%. And that's a key thing to know about. Even if you don't offer them to your employees, you still have 100% deduction for it. Uh, With one caveat, if you're on one of those MediShare sharing plans or like a Christian uh, sharing plan, that's actually not technically considered insurance that would not qualify. Mm. So it has to be actual actual insurance plan, you know, whether it's through the marketplace or wherever it might be, it has to be an actual insurance plan. If you're on a cost sharing one or ministry sharing plan, that would not be deductible because it's not considered actual insurance. Now, with that being said, a lot of those plans are so much more reasonable in, in many cases that, you know, you paying less premiums, is is better than than paying more in premiums and getting a tax deduction for it. So, you know, I'm not saying you should be switching your insurance at all. I'm just saying that that's one key to consider when they are not deductible is in that type of scenario. Yeah, I know those are have increased in popularity and it's good to know again that we are deducting those when they are eligible for deduction on our personal and not we can't use the business un, until we get to the S corp uh, classification. Yep, exactly. And you can yeah. actually deduct them on your business tax return. Uh, for even if you're a single member or on your on your books, you can run them through your business bank account. That's fine. Whether you run it through your business bank account or your personal bank account, it doesn't matter. It's going to get reported the same exact way on your personal tax return. The the difference is that if you are an S corporation, you need to run those through the S corporation business return. Sure. Yeah, and, and I, I, it's one of those things of of it's a necessary expense, and there are things that we can do with it to lessen our our tax burden. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's kind of the idea behind it. all kind of tax planning is we're going to have the spending anyways. How can we at least get a tax deduction for that type of spending? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's speaking of that, you know, we're coming in, it's, it's November right now. We're, we're moving into December pretty quickly here. I, am I running out of time to make big tax moves regarding things like retirement accounts. Uh, I, I know some of those can be deductible, some aren't. Um, it, what can I do if I'm a solopreneur, single member LLC, or, or member LLC, if I'm looking at going, oh, I, I, maybe I should do something with retirement. I'm, I'm facing maybe a tax burden, or I made a lot more than I expected this year. Um, can I do something with retirement or maybe investing as a way to, to lower my burden? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so when we're talking about retirement, we always kind of we bring up two different scenarios. Uh, those uh, business owners that have no employees or no employees outside of maybe the spouse uh, and, and family members, but traditionally no employees outside the business owners or and then those that have employees. And so if you have no employees, there's kind of two main retirement plans that we're going to gear towards. We're going to look at the SEP IRA, and more often than not, we're going to favor the solo 401k. And the reason behind uh, these options are is that you're able to put a portion of your your earnings away into retirement and get a deduction for them, assuming you have it in a traditional non-Roth type plan. If you have employees, then we're going to be looking at a simple IRA, a safe harbor, 401k, or something like that. So that's kind of the key, the, the key distinguisher is, do we have employees? Yes. Okay. And then we're going to look at a simple IRA or a safe harbor 401k as a retirement vehicle. We have no employees. Now we're going to look at a SEP IRA or a solo 401k. Now, with SEP IRAs and solo 401ks, specifically for those with no employees, there is opportunities to fund them after the year is over, um, so you can make back payments on them, unless there's any kind of employer contribution. So if you're with a solo 401k and you're going to put up money into it as an employee and then you want your employer to match that, the employer portion should be made before year end, but the employee portion can be done before you file your tax return. So uh, there is some leeway with the solo and the, the SEP IRA. Uh, but you know, at the same time, a lot of times we encourage people that if you have the funds, just, just get done before you end. It makes the accounting for it a lot easier too. Hmm. Well, so what are some of the, the, the limits on contributions of those? Do they have a max that I can deduct if I'm investing in them uh, by the end of the year? Yeah, so you know the the solo 401k has two pieces to it. You have the employee portion and the employer portion. The employee portion you can contribute up to 19,500 in. So if you're running it as an S corp as an example, you can contribute up to 19,500 into that and then your employer can match up to 25% of your W2 salary. So let's say you were making $100,000 as easy numbers. You could put 19500 of that as an employee, and then your employer, which would be your business, could match or, or do a contribution of 25% of your salary or an additional 25000 hmm. So in that case, you're taking 19500 plus 25000 The max with that type of plan is 58000 this year. So the max you could do with a solo 401k is 58000 with the SEP IRA, it's a little bit different. With a SEP IRA, you are allowed to contribute 20%. If you're a sole proprietorship or a single member LLC, you can contribute up to 20% of your income. So you make $100,000, you can contribute $20,000. If you're a S corporation, you can contribute up to 25% of your income. So you take a salary of 100000 you can contribute up to 25000 And so the SEP IRA typically is going to be a little bit more limited because it's a percentage of your income, where with the solo 401k, you can contribute 19500 no matter what, as long as you have that amount of income that you can contribute to it. So it, it creates the ability to uh, take a more of a deduction with a solo 401k. But again, it just depends on how much money you want to put away. If you're looking to put away $5,000, 
we might not look at any of these plans and we might just look at like a traditional IRA or something like that. But if you're looking to put a lot of money into retirement, that's where we start to look at some of these other plans. Right. And now I am a little curious about the distinction of, of why there are differences and what I can use if I have employees versus if I, I don't. Is that just because of the business structure or is that because of um, income levels or things like that? Yeah. So you technically can use all these plans with you if you have employees. The reason that we typically, if you have employees, would not want to offer or would not traditionally offer a SEP IRA or a solo is because if you're really trying to max out your retirement and uh, and, and say you're, trying, you're doing a 25% match or a 20% you know, from a SEP IRA or something like that, whatever you do for yourself, you have to offer to your employees. And ah. so, you know, you, you might not want to contribute 25% of your employees, you know, all of your employees uh, earnings into a retirement plan because that's additional cost for you as the employer. So that's why, you know, tri- traditionally a SEP IRA solo, they're easier plans and they allow you as the business owner to, to really kind of max out a retirement mm-hmm. that you might not want to do for all of your employees necessarily. Gotcha. Uh, the simple IRA and the safe harbor 401k is when we traditionally use and we have employees because um, they limit that that uh, required employer contribution a bit. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Is just looking at again looking at overall expenditures and what you are able to do as as a business. Yep, that makes sense. Something else that changed last year was a lot of pet sitters had to become acquainted with acquainted with sales tax. Uh, usually, services aren't taxed with a sales tax, but a lot of pet sitters started offering things like gift boxes or selling shirts as a as an online store or many making bandanas and selling physical goods that were now subject to this. So this may be the first year they've ever had to file taxes with that's added sales tax uh, on top of it. So um, wh- how do they get ready for that? What do they need to have on hand or be prepared for? Yeah, sales tax is going to be tricky because every locality, every state, and then deeper down, every locality is going to be trading sales tax, have different laws and everything on that front. Mm. So when it comes to sales tax, obviously that's going to be separate or you know separate activity from your normal income tax return. So if you're filing your normal business tax return, you don't pay sales tax on that business tax return. The sales tax piece is its own return that you might have been doing quarterly or monthly or something like that already. So when it comes to sales tax, being that every state's different and every locality is different, traditionally, it's something that we don't do a ton of. Uh, We don't touch a ton of, but we work with a partner. Their name is Peisner Johnson out of Texas. All they do is handle sales tax. And so traditionally, we're going to recommend people to them because they can get a free initial consultation and say, you know, hey, here's my scenario. What do I need to know about sales tax? And they can kind of be that guide to say, okay, here's where you need to do filing. Here's where you don't need to do filing. They might even say, here's where you have some liability, but you might only have a dollar or $2 in sales tax. So you know it doesn't make sense cost-wise to even do that filing. And they're going to kind of give you the details of that type of activity. Hmm. Yeah, I, that, that was you know my, my understanding as well of just this hyper-locality of what's required, how it's going to look for you. So it really is one of those situations of if you're even a little bit unsure, reach out to somebody and be guided through that process, at least for those couple of times that you're going to be filing. 
Yeah. And I would also say that uh, state agencies are super helpful in this area too. Okay. Um, so many people are afraid to contact the state or contact the IRS because they feel like they're already getting it. Like a, they're being marked as a check mark in the state's box. Um, <laughs> but these agencies are, they're, they're humans just like us. And they, and they really honestly just want to help people out and make sure they don't get into trouble so that they don't have to be uh, going after people. Um, so if you have something too like that, you know, feel free to reach out to your state, email them call them. They'll be able to say, yep, you, you have a sales tax liability. Here is what it is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just important to, and, and I know a lot of these, if you're using an online portal to sell these types of items, um, a lot of these CRMs will have a sales tax functionality built in where they have a integration with a company like TaxJar who calculates and pays all your, your sales tax on you. So um, feel free to reach out to your CRM if you're using one of those or your website builder that, that you might be selling this activity on because they might be able to give you some some insights as, as well into you know kind of what your sales tax looks like. Uh, one of the, the previous times that we had you on, we spent a lot of time talking about the PPL and uh, EIDL programs and our filing responsibilities. What's kind of the status of those as a business? And what are some scenarios people may find themselves in preparing for this tax season? Yeah, I, I was really hoping I never had to hear PPP or EIDL again, <laughs> oh. but uh, I, guess it's, I guess it's coming back. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. We, can, we can skip this one. We, we'll no, do them all I'm, again. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um, these, these two have just been uh, a nightmare for accountants the past two years because they're, they're new their new type of government funding options that haven't been around before and the mm. rules are constantly changing. So it's just been, it's just been a quite, a, I'll say fun couple of years here, but um, two things we'll, we'll, we'll talk about them separately. The PPP is a loan that was forgivable if you qualified. And so you'd be working directly with a bank that you're working with to determine if your loan got forgiven, you're going to work with that bank specifically on the forgiveness of that loan. The key thing here is that if you have a loan forgiven, uh, that's going to be added as as taxable income to your business, but you still get the deduction on whatever they forgave initially. So uh, typically this was used for payroll or rent and things like that. So you would still get that initial tax deduction, but then when they forgive it, that's going to be um, a, that's going to be the piece that we want to make sure that whenever you're reaching out to your accountant, that you're separating that for them. Um, the EIDL is a little bit different. The EIDL had two pieces to it. They had a grant. That's going to be uh, the initial amount that they sent over to you. That that was just kind of a flat amount, and that was just a grant, not necessarily a loan. And then they have the loan portion, which a lot of small business owners were taking out as well. So if you have the loan portion, that's just going to be treated as usual. You're going to have a loan that you're paying off. You have uh, you know you have interest payments that they probably have collected on. That's going to be directly with the SBA. So you're going to be making those loan payments directly to the SBA, taking that interest interest expense and any interest portion of those loan, loan payments. So you're going to want to make sure you have kind of that distinguished uh, idea of how much of this loan was for interest, how much of the loan payments I made was for principal. The principal piece, obviously not deductible, just as when you received that loan, it wasn't income to you, but the interest portion uh, would be deductible on that. And that's something that, again, um, people... It's one of those things that they know you you know if you're in those situations, you know if you took those extensions, you know if you've applied for these things. And now the problem is probably digging out a lot of this paperwork and blowing off the dust of those original emails and making sure you know exactly where you stand. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and most of the PPP, so there's two rounds of PPP, PPP round one and then round two. Um, you probably have uh, at least for the first round filed for forgiveness. And I, I can't remember if the second round you might have filed for forgiveness already. But if those are outstanding, you haven't filed for forgiveness, I would definitely reach out to the bank that you got it through. Just get that done, you know, assuming that you do, it is allowed to be forgiven. Just get that done so you can kind of get that off your back and not have to worry about it. Um, and then the EIDL, if you have a loan out there, obviously you're going to want to include that loan on your balance sheet of your accounting and bookkeeping. So, if you have a loan, just make sure that you kind of have that recorded of kind of how much EIDL loan did you get? And, you know, you probably have already started to make payments on it, but what does that look like as well? And making sure you're recording that properly. Have you been in touch with um, how long processing times have been? I know initially it seemed like they were taking forever. Do you, do you know if they're being able to be worked through the system a lot faster these days? Yeah, I think now, you know, everyone's kind of got a system in place. The SBA site's not overloaded. So uh, from what I'm seeing, the forgiveness on the PPPs are definitely going a lot quicker now. And it's a much easier process. It's been ironed out. Uh, but, you know, there might still be banks that are a little bit slower. Maybe they didn't do as many. So, uh, you know, just kind of continue to monitor that. But I would definitely start reaching out to your banker on the forgiveness piece just to get that out of the way. Then you don't have to worry about any deadlines you're hitting or anything like that. Sure. One big business expense that I know pet sitters specifically look at is is their vehicle, gas, and mileage. And it, I wanted to ask you about whether I, as a business owner, can buy a vehicle through my business. And then really what the limitations are for use of that vehicle and, and how I make that, that work for me. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a great opportunity to get a, a big deduction and to offset a bunch of your income is purchasing a vehicle. And, and you can definitely purchase a vehicle within your business by your business. Um, the biggest thing that I always talk to clients first about, my first question is, is, is this a 100% business vehicle or not? If it's a 100% business vehicle, run it through the business. That's totally fine. Pay, you can even own it personally. And we could talk about what that looks like as far as how that works to get that deduction. Yeah. But if it's a hundred percent business vehicle, having that through the business is totally fine. If you have a vehicle that's business and personal mix, we want to probably buy that one personally and then just reimburse yourself for the business portion or get a deduction just for the business portion. Reason being is that if we run it through the business, but it's say 70% business, 30% personal, now we kind of have to back out that personal activity from that vehicle. And that just can be a little bit more complex, a little bit more cloudy than mm. just say reimbursing yourself for the business portion of that vehicle. When we have a vehicle, we really have two options on how we record the expenses for it. We have the mileage deduction, which is just simply you take whatever your business mileage is and you get the mileage deduction rate for that. Very simple, very easy, just making sure you're tracking everything. If you're in the mileage, you can have it, own it personally. It doesn't matter. You're just going to get that mileage deduction as a reimbursement. If you use the actual method, now we're taking, okay, what you know, what is the maintenance on this? What is the full gas price on this? What is interest on any loan? Um, you're taking depreciation for the vehicle. And so you're, you're going through a lot of more steps when you look at it through this method, uh, but sometimes you're going to get a bigger deduction depending on what type of vehicle you have, what's the age of the vehicle, how many miles you're putting on. Um, so that's really kind of the determination is first decide, am I just going to do mileage on that? This is simple. This is easy. It's a flat rate. Or am I going to do actual on this? I'm going to record every single expense related to this vehicle and then take my business portion on that. 
traditionally for people that are running high miles, and this is just kind of a general rule of thumb, if you have a lot of miles, mileage over the long run is probably going to give you a better deduction. Uh, but if you have a super expensive car, that's going to change the theory on that a little bit, potentially. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine different scenarios with, with pet sitters and how they're running and operating their business. I know some go around and they have vans that they collect dogs in to go take on group walks or go transport them around. That sounds like a scenario where actually purchasing that that vehicle that's set up for that very specific situation, run that through the business to have it buy it versus somebody who's just driving their car from place to place and also stopping for lunch and going to pick up kids and using it for family things. That would not be a good situation is what I'm understanding here to run to, to have the business buy that particular vehicle. Exactly. You know, typically I would say you, if you have a business and personal mixed vehicle, you're better off owning it personal and taking the reimbursement for the business use of that vehicle. Uh, if it's a hundred percent business use, then you're fine running it through the business and that makes it easier enough for you. Sure. Um, the other key thing about vehicle, which kind of plays with a home office is that, you know, traditionally, if you go from your home to a place of, of work, so let's say you go from your home to an office or your home to a client, that's considered a commute because you're commuting to where you're working to. That is not deductible business mileage. But the beauty behind pairing mileage or, or vehicle expenses with a home office is now your commute is from your bedroom to your home office. And anytime you leave your house for business-related items, you're going from an office to another office or an office to a client. Now that is deductible mileage. So a lot of people say, well, I don't want to take the home office. It's not that big of a deduction. I feel like it's it's risky, which it's not, by the way, but I feel like it's risky, so I'm not going to take it. But then when I say that, I'm like, well, we're, the home office might be a small deduction, but it's it can be a decent deduction. But by not having a home office, we're also missing out on some mileage because now we're going to have more commuting mileage than, say, deductible business miles. Mm. And, th- and that's really key is whenever we look at the, the holistic approach here of how we're actually operating and really optimizing these these tax advantages, that's where you see a lot of, of payoff and in, in, in compounding of benefit to you and your business. Yeah, absolutely. Pet sitters, yes, you. Are you looking for easy to access online trainings? Ones that will help you build confidence, offer superior care, and gain certificates that you can show potential clients? At Petzers International, they offer online courses that allow new and veteran Petzers alike to save time and money and learn at your own pace, wherever you go. As the economy picks up, more and more pet sitters and dog walkers are reopening their businesses, and more pet lovers are considering entering the industry. The pet sitters who separate themselves from the pack will be the ones who can demonstrate superior knowledge and credentials. Whether you're looking for training on how to get your pet sitting business off the ground, or you want comprehensive online first aid training, PSI has got you covered. When you sign up for a PSI course, you can access it immediately. And once you finish the course, you'll be able to download a certificate of completion that you can proudly display in your office or when meeting a new client. Invest in ongoing education today. Visit PetSit.com slash PSC. When it comes to insuring that vehicle, am I if it's bought through the business or my, my personal, how do I go about in purchasing that insurance? Do I have to buy that? through the business or am I able to do that and still keep that business vehicle on my personal insurance? Yeah, that's a great question. And and, and funny because I just went through this with uh, 
with my father-in-law that he bought a vehicle for his business. Uh, if you buy the vehicle through the business via the business title, it's titled to the business. The insurance would have to be titled by the business, which means you're going to have a commercial type insurance policy for that vehicle. If you buy it personally, you can obviously put it on your personal uh, insurance. So a lot of times, even if it's 100% business use, we'll see clients that purchase everything personally, and then they just reimburse themselves from the business through an accountable plan for the business use of that vehicle, even if it's 100%. Uh, other clients are saying, you know, that insurance, if I had to pay a little bit more in insurance, uh, that's still a business deduction. That additional amount you pay insurance is a business deduction. So if I have to pay a little bit more insurance just to kind of do it, make it, make my life simple, I'm going to do that. And obviously I get a deduction for that too. So I would always recommend before you purchase that vehicle, maybe run some quotes on the business versus personal to see if you can just kind of decide, oh yeah, this makes sense. Or if it's vastly different, then you might want to kind of revisit that and be like, okay, maybe I should do this personally because it is different. Sometimes it's it's very little difference. Sometimes it's more. Kind of just depends on your industry, type of vehicle you have, and things like that. But uh, the the key thing to think about there is that if it's titled in the business, insurance is with the business. I see. You know, something that you've talked a lot about throughout our entire discussion is looking at whether you can ha- run it through the business first or do personal and then being reimbursed through the business and take that deduction. In general, do you have a philosophy or an approach where where you typically like? one method over the other, you know, seeing the business try and cover all the costs and not touch the personal account versus uh, the, 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 the method of having the personal account absorb, you know, to pay some of those things than being reimbursed through the business. Do, do you feel like one is better or worse than the other, or is it really just truly um, uh, situational and, and dependent on everybody's case? Yeah. So what we typically say as, as a general guideline is if it's a hundred percent business, run it through the business. And this is just going for like any type of expense, not just vehicles are a little bit different because you have that insurance piece sure. that pops in there to complicate a little bit. But yeah. let's just look at spending overall. If it's 100% business, run that through the business bank account. That's very easy. If it's business and personal mix, traditionally we're going to say, run it personally and reimburse yourself for the business portion. Sure. So there's an example of this might be a home office. You know, your home office might be a hundred square feet out of a thousand square feet. So we're going to run that personally, but we're going to get reimbursed from the business for the, for the business pers- purpose of it. Uh, a cell phone bill. Maybe you have a cell phone bill that's not 100% business. We're going to say, let's run that through your personal account, but let's reimburse or, or use at least a portion of that as a business expense. And so that's kind of the the theory that we use. 100% business, run that through the business bank account. Business and personal mix, typically we're going to say, let's run that personally and let's reimburse ourselves for the business portion of that. Mm. You know, we started off talking about some big changes or something new for this tax season. Uh, Wanted to get your, your, your thoughts on deductions that either you uh, love to see people take or maybe a lot of people miss and, and take advantage of uh, for, for their business? Yeah, this is uh, one topic that, that I'm very passionate about. And when we talk about tax savings, most of, my, uh, most, of, most of my passion is saying, how can I inform business owners of the tax saving potential that is out there to make sure that they pay the least amount of taxes as legally possible? So many business owners think tax savings are for millionaires. Completely untrue. Majority of tax savings that millionaires are using, someone making 
$20,000 a year could implement. Now, of course, there's some advanced tax plan. There's some crazy stuff out there that more wealthy individuals might be using. But some of the core fundamental tax saving strategies can be used at any income level. And one that is extremely simple, extremely easy to understand, extremely safe, but I see people look over and forget about most often is maximizing deductions. So the best way that I can say this is the best way I can describe this is is to think about after-tax dollars and pre-tax dollars. So the best the example of this is let's say you're a W-2 employee. You work for somebody else. You make a gross amount of wages. They take all these taxes out and you get a check with whatever is left after taxes are taken out. That's called after-tax dollars. So now you take that after-tax dollars, you go and buy uh, various different things, you pay for your living and everything else. That's all spending that's been done after the funds have already been taxed. As a business owner, we get our, our sales or our revenue from our business. We have all these expenses that we put into our business, and whatever is left over is what we get taxed on. And so I always want to be encouraging business owners to think about what are we doing with our everyday spending? How can we move some of that spending that we're going to do no matter what into find a business purpose for it, move it into the business, and now turn an after-tax dollar into a pre-tax dollar? And this is where we start to get creative. This is where we want to be thinking about these types of items. A lot of times I look at this, this could be things like hiring your kids in your business. You're going to be paying for basketball camps. You're going to be paying for these various things for your for your children anyways. What if you could find a way to hire them in your business, pay them a reasonable rate for some work that they can do within your business? Now you're going to get a business deduction for that basketball camp. Now, not necessarily that basketball camp, but you're going to, you're going to get a business deduction because you're hiring your kids in your business and then your kids can go pay for the basketball camp if that's what you choose to have them do. But it's just this idea of how can I take this after-tax spending, this money that I'm going to spend anyways, and moving it into pre-tax spending where I can get a business deduction for this. A good example of that I always use in this scenario is to think about and help help understand how this works is let's say you're a W-2 employee and COVID hit and you were working in an office. Now you're working from home. In order to work from home, you had to go out and buy a desk. You're going to have some home office space. You're going to have internet that you're using from your home. You're going to have all these added expenses that you're going to have to pay out. Now you get no deduction for that because you're a W-2 employee. As a business owner, it's the flip. It's the opposite of that. We get we're working from an office. Now we're coming from we're working from home. We go out and buy a desk. That's a business deduction. We have we're using some of the internet. Well, a portion of that internet's going to be a business deduction. We have the ability to take some of that spending that we're going to do anyways and move it into a business expense. So the best thing I can do before year end is is to have people think about this. Go through. Some of the spending that you've done on the personal side and say, can I find a business purpose for this? Is there some business activity that this was related to? And how do I get a business deduction for this? Maybe we went out to eat with a friend and that friend we talked about business. That friend maybe is a client of ours. That friend maybe is an employee of ours. Well, how can we talk about business and make that a business meeting and get a business deduction for that meal that we might have done anyways, but now we're kind of intertwining our business into this. Uh, so that's one area when, I, when I'm looking at small business owners, this is one of the most missed areas because it, it's almost too simple. But every little <laughs> deduction starts to add up. And I just want to encourage people that you're a business owner. You, there's The tax law was written the way it was. 
It's your opportunity to utilize that to your advantage and to take a deduction for what is rightfully yours. And I think, again, what's so powerful about that is that these are expenses that you are doing anyway. And and to know that, okay, I might not get the full deduction, like, you know, for a cell phone bill or for my internet, but at least it's a partial deduction. At least it's something that I'm adding. And again, when we look at our life and as small business owners, we, we are, we have these expenses and, uh, especially when it's mixed use, you are still able to get that deduction for business. And by missing that, you know, it's like, oh, well, it might be only be $50 or whatever. But that adds up when you think about each of these little purchases or things that we make throughout the entire year. That's exactly right. And that's a key distinction that you mentioned there is that when we talk about maximizing deductions, we're not saying go out and buy a bunch of stuff that you don't need just to get a tax deduction. Yeah, I would never advise someone to do that because you're, you're spending money on stuff you don't need. So sure, you get a tax deduction. But you lost all that money, and now you have a product or something that you don't actually need. So that would never be an advice that I would give. But the idea behind this is let's look at that spending that we're going to do anyways. How can we find that business purpose for it? And at least get, if it's not 100%, get a portion business use deduction, again, lowering our tax liability. That's why you know anybody that I talk to, they say, you know, hey, I'm a W-2 employee. How do I save taxes? Start a business. Find a way to start a business. This, when, we're, when we're talking about a start a business, this doesn't have to be a million-dollar business. You can have a $10,000 a year business, a $20,000 a year business, but think about the door that opens up by having that business. Now we have some of your home office, part of your cell phone bill, part of your internet, some furniture that you might have in your home office. Now we're creating all those business deductions so that $10,000 at $20,000 of income that you have from your business is actually going to be a lot less because we're taking deductions on stuff that we normally couldn't have done without being a business owner. Right. So always take advantage of being a business owner. Take advantage of the way the law is written and the opportunities that you have available to you. But again, with caution, don't get greedy. Don't try to <laughs> uh, deduct 100% of your, of your home because you say, I work from every area of my home. That's stuff that's not going to be allowed. So right. it's <laughs> taking this type of thing being creative, being aggressive with it, but also not crossing that line. Well, and that's that's absolutely great advice, Mike. Uh, it has been, yet again, a wonderful pleasure to talk with you about taxes, a, a topic that, again, a lot of people's eyes kind of roll in the back of their head. But when we start digging into these little things and looking at how we're maximizing it, we really do see that power and that advantage. I know everybody's situation is unique, and there's so much more and complexity that goes into this. So uh, how can people get in touch with you, follow your podcast, and where can they connect with you on social media? Yeah, so you can go to Small Business Tax Savings Podcast. That's our podcast on any podcasting platform that you utilize. You can also find us directly on our website at taxsavingspodcast.com. If you type in Tax Savings Podcast, Small Business Tax Savings Podcast on any social media, you'll be able to find us there as well. We also have a new tax minimization program where we kind of deep dive into all these different tax strategies. We call it kind of an accountant in your back pocket where you have unlimited <laughs> access to our team to ask kind of those general accounting or tax questions. You can find that directly on our tax uh, savings podcast website, which is taxsavingspodcast.com. So you can find us all there. Uh, obviously, uh, we do weekly episodes on our podcast where we're talking about uh, specific tax strategies. And it's just a great area to, even if you're just getting started, go back to some of our, our previous episodes, find a topic that makes sense for you and just dive into it because there's a lot of good golden nuggets there that can help you make sure that you're saving taxes. Even yet this year, there's still time available to take advantage of these things. 
Absolutely. And I'll, I'll pitch it. You can uh, join your Facebook group as well. It's not pet sitting specific, but there's so many great things in there uh, that uh, people throw out ideas. And it really just gets you thinking about how to use your business the most effectively and get advantage of that come tax time. Yeah, that's a great idea, Colin. You can find that on our website. Or if you just go into Facebook and type in uh, Small Business Tax Secrets, it'll pop up as a Facebook group that you can join as well. Perfect. And I will have links to all that in your past episodes with us and directly to your podcast as well. Mike, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, Colin, thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully everyone can start paying less in taxes now. As we close out 2021, right now is more important than ever to make sure that your business is actually working for you. It does that by A, allowing you to feel fulfilled and to be investing in something and living out your passion through the work that you do every day. It secondly does that by earning you money in return for working that passion. And thirdly, it needs to be saving you money on things that you're spending, whether that's for your personal or for your business. So as Mike suggested, take a moment, take a couple days to parse through everything that you've spent money on this year, both in your personal and in your business, and really do a line item assessment of where that money should have come from. If it was personal, but it could be used for business, consider using it as a deduction and getting some money back for that. Or maybe fast forward to next year and make sure that those expenses are directly coming out of the business if it's being used for that. Simple steps like that save you money, save you a tax burden, and make sure that you are working efficiently and effectively in your business. That's something we all want. We all want something to be simple and not a total monstrosity of complexity. There are a ton of links in this week's show notes from everything that Mike and I discussed, including some bonus blogs that he has included for us. So check out the links in your app that you're listening on or go to petsitterconfessional.com slash episodes slash two, three, four, and get more extended notes there as well. We want to thank our sponsors, Time to Pet and Petsers International for sponsoring today's show and making it possible for us to bring these kind of interviews to you. And we really want to thank you for listening, for contributing, for giving your support and feedback and everything that you do. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and a very happy Thanksgiving from Megan and I. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>